Out front next, CNN inside Gaza for a firsthand look at the fighting and as Gazans suffer, Hamas leaders are nowhere to be found. Some living a life of luxury a thousand miles away. A special report coming up. Plus, exclusive CNN reporting on the Mar-a-Lago documents case, a wide-ranging list of potential witnesses, including a maid, a plumber, even a woodworker, all on that list. And Trump is, quote, ballistic over it. At an outfront special report, China, a superpower with a stunning message for Chinese women. Quit your jobs, stay home, go have babies. Let's go out front. Good evening, I'm Erica Hill in tonight for Aaron Burnett. Out front tonight, a first-hand look at Hamas training camps. Now, these are new pictures from inside Gaza. Our Oren Lieberman was embedded with Israel's military as they made their way to a Hamas training camp. So the camp, as you can see here, includes several buildings. It is important to note CNN reported from Gaza under the escort of Israel Defense Forces at all times. But CNN does maintain full editorial control and we'll have much more from Oren in just a moment. According to Israel's military, they are now fighting Hamas block by block, house by house, closing in on what they're calling the heart of Hamas's intelligence and operational activities. According to Israel, an estimated 80,000 people traveled south today alone to escape the fighting. This mass migration coming as the White House says Israel is agreeing to pause its military operations in northern Gaza for four hours a day so people can leave. Just moments ago, though, Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu made it clear this is not a ceasefire. One thing we haven't agreed to is a ceasefire. A ceasefire with Hamas means surrender to Hamas, surrender to terror, and the victory of the uh, Iran's axis of terror. So there won't be a ceasefire without the release of the Israeli hostages. So all of this comes as another group in Gaza, the Palestinian Islamic Jihad, acknowledged for the first time that it, too, is holding Israeli hostages. So they're holding them in addition to Hamas, as we knew. The group released a video of two hostages, a 77-year-old woman and a 13-year-old boy. The group says it is ready to release them based on humanitarian grounds, but did not elaborate on when or if these two would actually be released, whether it would actually happen. Orrin Lieberman is out front live in Tel Aviv. So, Orrin, uh, walk us through, first of all, what you saw today inside Gaza. Erica, it's nearly impossible at this point as a journalist to get into Gaza, either from the Israeli side or the Egyptian side. So we had an opportunity to go in with the Israeli military. I'll mention this disclosure here about the conditions under which we entered Gaza. CNN reported from Gaza under IDF escort at all times as a condition for journalists to embed with the IDF. Media outlets must submit footage filmed in Gaza to the Israeli military for review. CNN had editorial control over our reporting. Having said that, we went in on America Merkava tank with the IDF. We stayed in northern Gaza, probably not getting in deeper than a mile, but everything we saw at first, what was farmland, was essentially all, all torn up, the, the, the fields lying fallow. There was not a sign of, of life in pretty much any direction. And as we got deeper in, we got closer to what had been areas of civilian buildup, where there had been homes, apartment buildings, and entire neighborhoods that had been destroyed in Israeli airstrikes or the Israeli ground operation as they moved in. And that was in pretty much every direction you looked. 
we stopped at one viewpoint and looked down onto what was, according to the IDF, a Hamas training site, one they knew about and one that was fairly close to the border there that had been uh, destroyed. The uh, tank commander that I had a chance to speak with said they had a mock Israeli tank there that they would practice fighting and attacking, how to dismantle and, and essentially fight a tank, and they had put out these videos. The IDF, when they went in, uh, destroyed that training site. We got to see what was left of it as we moved around for about 90 minutes to two hours uh, inside of Gaza before it was time to come out after looking around there. I will point out one more uh, interesting thing we saw as we, as we went in. We actually saw it. There were a number of destroyed vehicles that were right on the Gaza border there. And when I talked to the tank commander about what they were, he said those are destroyed vehicles that have been pulled out of Gaza for the, for the Israeli military and Israeli experts to look at in what he called essentially a contract between Israel and the families of those who have lost loved ones in the October 7th attack. Israel will look at all those vehicles and try to find some remnants, some remains of a body to try to give some sort of closure there as something they see as a duty that they have to do for the families that have lost loved ones. Uh, not only in the fighting, but on the attack on October 7th, Erica. Oren Lieberman, really appreciate the reporting. Thank you. While civilians in Gaza continue to suffer, many Hamas leaders are nowhere to be found. In fact, U.S. officials say those Hamas leaders are actually living in luxury abroad. This is Gazans face an unprecedented humanitarian crisis. Fred Pleiken is out front. Israel's 162nd Division in urban combat in central Gaza. This video was provided by the Israel Defense Forces. They say their troops are now well inside Gaza City, where they found Hamas command and control, as well as weapons-making facilities. We are now fighting a ground offensive that will only deepen, the IDF spokesperson says. In the heart of Gaza City, we will reach more and more Hamas strongholds. Gaza's civilians continue to suffer as Israel presses on with its offensive. Tens of thousands fleeing the northern part of the Strip in recent days, according to the UN. While the Palestinian Ministry of Health says thousands have been killed or wounded in Hamas-controlled Gaza. Still, tough talk coming from Hamas's leader, Ismail Haniya, threatening the Israeli army. They are drowning in the sands of Gaza, he says. This will cost them a lot on all fronts, including the life of their hostages. But Ismail Haniyeh himself isn't even inside Gaza. Like much of Hamas's political leadership, he's in the safety and the comfort of Qatar, recently meeting with Iran's foreign minister there. Any organization. A cynical situation, Israeli columnist and Hamas expert Shlomi Eldar tells me. So it's very easy to tell the Palestinian in Gaza Strip, okay, fight, make the jihad. The jihad is a war against Israel, and we'll give you an order from outside of Gaza. Both Israel and the United States claim Hamas's leadership is wealthy and, quote, live in luxury abroad. CNN is not able to verify those claims, but it's a stark contrast to the deteriorating living conditions the majority of Gazans have faced under a 16-year blockade as the standoff between Hamas and Israel intensified. After Hamas's October 7th attack, killing more than 1,400 in southern Israel, with hundreds taken as hostages into the Gaza Strip, that has turned into a full-scale war with all its consequences. 
Hamas's leadership making clear, again from outside of Gaza, they're willing to sacrifice more civilians in Gaza. Will we have to pay a price, he asks? Yes, and we are ready to pay for it. And Hamas's leaders in exile are calling on citizens of nations in the region to sacrifice as well. This is former Hamas boss Khaled Meshal, who is also not inside the Gaza Strip. I call firstly on the surrounding countries, Jordan, Syria, Lebanon and Egypt, all of its sons and daughters. Your duty is bigger because you are closer to Palestine. Now, Erica, one of the things that Hamas's leadership in exile is doing is traveling around the region, obviously trying to further their agenda. In fact, Khaled Meshal, who we saw at the end of our report there, he was part of a Hamas delegation that also included the head of Hamas, Ismail Haniyeh, which traveled to Cairo in Egypt today. Now, all all we know from that meeting is that they met with the head of Egyptian intelligence and spoke about the situation inside Gaza, of course, as the suffering there continues. Erica? Uh, Fred, such an interesting report. Thank you. Out front now, former CENTCOM commander, retired General Joseph Votel, who oversaw military operations across the Middle East. General, good to have you with us tonight. I'd love if we could just begin with what we just heard from Fred, the fact that these Hamas leaders are living in luxury abroad. It is such a stark contrast with what we are seeing in terms of how Gazans are living every day. Does it in any way threaten their hold on the area or their power? Well, I think, it, uh, first of all, it's great to be with you. Yeah, I think that it does. I mean, I think it demonstrates uh, the lack of credibility of some of these leaders. This is not unlike what we saw with the Taliban and Haqqani and al-Qaeda. Um, uh, the Taliban in particular kept uh, leadership in uh, in Qatar. Uh, and, of course, uh, Taliban, Haqqani and al-Qaeda all kept their senior leaders in, in the comfort of Pakistan uh, while their fighters were over in Afghanistan. And of course, Iran, you know, executes all of their operations through uh, proxy forces that are located out there and, and, and then gives orders from the from the safety of Tehran. So this is, I think, very common to these types of organizations. In terms of these organizations, you have such a unique perspective. You actually have been inside a Hezbollah tunnel in northern Israel. We saw some of this new video from Oren of that Hamas training camp, uh, which the IDF took him to in Gaza. When you look at that, your experience what stands out to you in that video? Well, first of all, as I look at that image that's up there right now, I mean, that's not dissimilar to the type of training we would do with some of our forces, mock-ups, creating rooms, multi-floor uh, structures to allow uh, our troops to train. I mean, this is exactly uh, what they're what they're trying to do, and I think what it demonstrates is the is the sophistication of these uh, of these uh, of these organizations that they they are they're not stagnant. They learn. They're innovative. They make good use of the resources that they have. And, and to me, this just highlights the importance of continuing to keep pressure, not just on Hamas and and the other terrorist organizations that we normally deal with, but really paying attention to this as a as a long term problem in the region. And so many questions about just how long that long term could be. Um, I also want to get your take on the hostages for the first time today. The Palestinian Islamic Jihad, which is another terrorist group operating in Gaza, confirmed that it is holding some of the Israeli hostages, possibly as many as 40, according to reporting from Barak Ravid of Axios. How much does this complicate efforts? And, and by that, I mean the acknowledgement that more than one group is holding the nearly 240 hostages. How does that impact efforts to get them released? 
Well, I think what it takes is it takes a, a problem that is already hard and it adds another layer of complexity onto it. Having two or more groups who are holding hostages, each will have separate demands. They will they will look at the hostages in different ways. They may value them differently. Some may see them more as a strategic asset. Others may see them in a in a different light. Uh, and of course, for the for negotiators that are working uh, on this to try to to try to get a peaceful release of these hostages, it makes it that much more difficult than, of course, for the military and the intelligence communities are looking after this, uh, having different organizations doing different things here, I think just complicates the overall collection mission uh, around these hostages. And raises questions, too, of, of, of whether uh, they may be working together, too, in, the, in those efforts as they're holding the hostages. Right. I, I do want to get your take. President Biden said today the U.S. struck a weapons storage facility in eastern Syria that's used by Iran's Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps because, in the words of the president, quote, they struck us, adding the U.S. would strike again if we have to. So we now have new Pentagon video of that strike yesterday. U.S. and coalition forces in the region have been targeted 46 times in just the past three weeks. How concerned are you tonight about a widening war in the Middle East and U.S. involvement in that? Well, I, I would be very concerned, as most Americans should be. I mean, uh, these these Iranian-backed militias only have to only have to be right one time uh, to cause a significant number of casualties or American deaths here, and then we're at a different part in the war. So I'm glad that we're striking back, uh, but I do think it's important that we direct our strikes at those that are actually orchestrating uh, the strikes on us. I, I think our I think our job here is to remove the uncertainty. Uh, with the with Iran and with these Iranian-backed groups, uh, that we will not put up with this. I think it's a very important message for us to send right now, and I think it actually helps contain the conflict and make it very clear to those that would want to enter that uh, that's not the right that's not the right approach for them. General, appreciate your insight tonight. Thank you. Thank you. Great to be with you. Out front next, CNN exclusive reporting. The special counsel investigating Trump's handling of classified documents may want Trump's plumber, a maid, even a woodworker from Mar-a-Lago to testify. And that's apparently getting under Trump's skin. Plus, a big blow to Democrats. West Virginia Senator Joe Manchin announcing he will not run for re-election. But is that because Manchin is eyeing a run for the White House? And he sleeps in his office. And like so many Americans, he is living paycheck to paycheck. Is the new House Speaker more like his constituents and his colleagues. This podcast is supported by Sleep Number. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number smart bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for each of you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores? Sleep Number does that. Only Sleep Number smart beds let you each choose your ideal comfort and support. Your Sleep Number setting. Sleep Number smart beds learn how you sleep and provide personalized insights to help you sleep better. All Sleep Number smart beds feature cooling, pressure-relieving comfort layers for soothing sleep throughout the night. Temperature-balancing bedding is designed to move heat and moisture away when you're hot. When you're cool, they hold their energy to help warm you. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. 
Tonight, sources telling CNN exclusively that special counsel Jack Smith could be casting a very wide net when it comes to calling witnesses in the Mar-a-Lago classified documents case. A plumber, a maid, a woodworker, just to name a few of those who may be called to testify against former President Trump. In fact, the list of potential witnesses is also we're learning getting under Trump's skin when he learned that the maid who cleans his bedroom suite was asked to speak with federal prosecutors. A source says Trump went, quote, ballistic. Paula Reed, who broke this exclusive reporting, is out front tonight. So, Paula, what exactly is special counsel Jack Smith hoping to learn from these witnesses? Erica, these folks represent the eyes and ears of Mar-a-Lago. These are ordinary people who showed up to work and may have come into contact with some of the nation's most sensitive secrets. Now, certainly prosecutors also expected to call intelligence officials, secret service agents, but we've learned how far down the Mar-a-Lago payroll investigators have gotten. Let's take, for example, the woodworker that you mentioned. This is a man who was working on crown molding in Trump's bedroom in February 2022. And he believes that he may have seen classified documents. Now later, he sort of changed his story and suggested it could have been a movie prop, but he has spoken with federal investigators multiple times. And Erica, I think when people saw the indictment, they were shocked, uh, many of them, to see boxes of classified documents in a ballroom, in a bathroom, in a bedroom, places they do not belong. And this group of witnesses, a maid, a chauffeur, a plumber, these are folks who can really talk about the environment at the resort and speak to just how vulnerable these secrets were on a day-to-day -day basis. Now, as you noted, the former president is quite frustrated with how deep into the resort investigators have gotten, but... Before any of these folks can be called as a witness, there needs to be a trial. And right now, the judge overseeing this case, she is contemplating whether to push this back beyond the election. That's something that Trump lawyers have been pushing for. And if former President Trump, if that happens and Trump is reelected, he can probably get the entire case dismissed. Yeah, we will be watching to see how all of that plays out. Paula, I appreciate it. Thank you. Out front now, Ryan Goodman, former special counsel at the Defense Department and now the co-editor-in-chief of the Just Security Legal blog. Ryan, when you look at this, how significant do you think this testimony could be from these various employees at Mar-a-Lago? It could be highly significant, especially if you try to match it up with the indictment and what it alleges. So one of the most important pieces of the indictment is the idea that Donald Trump directed one of his aides, Walt Nautau, to take the boxes from the storage facility, bring them to his private residence, where he then picked at them, picked out the documents he wanted, and then they returned only about half of them back to the storage facility. So who would know about that? Well, he went ballistic when he found out that the maid who cleans the bedroom suite uh, was speaking or could be speaking with, was asked to speak with the FBI. Why would he go ballistic? Probably because he's worried about something that's not good for him and that she knows about it. She would maybe identify if there were 64 boxes in his private residence mm -hmm. and if these, it takes time, it's a several day period in which he's maybe going through them. These are really the eyes and ears, right? They, they could see and hear so much. Uh, Paul also mentioned potentially Secret Service agents, intelligence officials. What kinds of constraints could there be in terms of their testimony and security, national security? It's a great question. Uh, so they could have very important information. There's also like the eyes and the ears. They're witnessing everything because they may be accompanying the former president. But at the same time, you've got to be very concerned. You want a judge who has experience with national security matters who can ensure that the evidence that's relevant to the case comes in, but at the same time, it does not reveal important security information that could be damaging for how do these details work? What are the movements of the former president? How do they operate when, when they're trying to protect him? And that is in some ways potentially relevant because we want to know where he was at which times. So I think that's the kind of 
a delicate balance that has to be struck. Um, the judge, Eileen Cannon, who's a, a Trump-appointed judge, we're also learning that there's a chance, right, she may push this, supposed to start in May 2024, may push it past the election, citing the former president's busy schedule and also this need for the attorneys to go through all of the evidence here. What do you think the chances are that this does, in fact, get pushed past the election? I think it's a very good chance it does get pushed. Uh, the judge in this particular case has demonstrated extraordinary favor towards the president. Last year, she got overturned twice by a unanimous conservative panel at the 11th Circuit. And they didn't just say, like, she got it wrong. They were basically saying this is beyond the law, what you have done. You should not even have exercised jurisdiction in the first place with, the, with the, that part of the case. And then she's shown kind of extraordinary hostility towards the government that I haven't really seen from a judge. Even, like, the government just recently tried to say to her, you know, when you're setting this deadline for when the case is going to be, we just want to put you on notice that in our other case, mm -hmm. Trump is asked to suspend that case. So if he's asking to suspend it, then it doesn't interfere with you moving ahead. And she got... Uh, upset with the with the government for suggesting that to her, just bringing her attention to it. That's very unusual. Usually a judge would say, thank you for bringing my attention to it. And that's sort of standard practice from the DOJ, correct? Very standard practice and completely not standard practice on the part of a judge. So I think that she very well might say, look, I'm going to give him what he wants. What does he really want? To have this trial put back beyond the election. It'll be interesting to see if then that perhaps impacts the other cases. Ryan, yeah. really appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you. So out front next, what do Joe Manchin and The Rock have in common? Here's your hint, 2024. Plus, a CNN exclusive, former House Speaker Kevin McCarthy unloading on the Republicans who ousted him. I don't believe she wins re-election. He doesn't have a conservative bent in his philosophy. New tonight, Democratic Senator Joe Manchin is not seeking re-election in 2024. A major blow to Democrats hoping to hold on to that Senate seat in West Virginia, a state Donald Trump won by 39 points in 2020. It's not just, though, about control of the Senate. Manchin is also hinting now at a run for president. What I will be doing is traveling the country and speaking out to see if there is an interest in creating a movement to mobilize the middle and bring Americans together. We need to take back America and not let this divisive hatred further pull us apart. Out front now, Harry Enten, our numbers whiz, also Margaret Hoover, the host of PBS's Firing Line, and David Axelrod, former senior advisor to President Obama. Nice to see all three of you tonight. So Harry, take, take us through the numbers here. When we look at them, what sort of support does Joe Manchin have were he to launch a bid for the White House? Uh, I guess it depends on the eye of the beholder. It's 10%. Now, depending on who that is, that's either really high or it's really not high. Better than nine, I guess. Better than nine, better than zero. Certainly not up with the front runners. Uh, but, you know, 10% could be a lot in a race in which we already have two other third-party independent candidates involved, right? Cornell West and, of course, Robert F. Kennedy Jr., where their support, when you take that into account, the two front runners, two major party nominees, Donald Trump and Joe Biden, are well under 40% at this point. We could end up in a situation where the winner ends up well south of a majority because a lot of folks, simply put, don't like them. When we look at this, David, in your estimation, who fares better here with a Joe Manchin in the race, Joe Biden or Donald Trump? Yeah, I don't really have to think very hard about this. I think Joe, Joe Manchin's a Democrat. He's been a Democrat all his life. I think it would be very troublesome for the president if he were there, I think generally these third party candidates and independent candidates, Cornell West, even Robert Kennedy, who has big appeal to some Republicans, uh, I think they help 
Trump because uh, they lower the threshold that you need to win. Trump's never gotten above 46 percent of the vote. He needs a lower ceiling uh, in order to win uh, the presidency and, and third party candidates help him. That that was true in 2016. So this wouldn't be good news. Now, we'll mm-hmm. see what Senator Manchin does. I'm, I'm reminded that Dick Durbin, one of his colleagues, called him the greatest tease in American politics. And I suspect <laughs> we're going to see we're going to see why in the next few months. And we may be hearing some of those signs repeatedly. You, you mentioned we've heard Cornel West, RFK Jr. mentioned here, but Jill Stein also now throwing her hat yes. in the ring again. And Harry, exactly. remind us, Harry, in 2016, when she ran, what did that look like in terms of numbers? Yeah, I mean, look, she only got about 1% of the vote nationally in the key swing states as well. But remember how tight that race was. When you look at those key Great Lake battleground states, right, like Michigan, Pennsylvania, Wisconsin, the amount of votes that she got was more than the margin between Hillary Clinton and Donald Trump. So she, in many people's minds, played a bit of a spoiler. And again, when we're looking at such a tight race this time around, any extra addition to the equation throws it into some state of who the heck knows and may make the difference. The other aspect of this is that Joe Manchin could be on a ticket that is a national ticket, but not at the top of that ticket, because there is another independent effort, the no labels effort, Mm -hmm. to get on the ballot in all 50 states that purports that if you have a Democrat and a Republican together, you have, and and I give them credit, they're sincere in their, their earnestness that this would be a noble alternative to a tired Biden Trump election. But what they really believe is you could have, you know, take a Republican who's popular, take a Democrat who's popular. Maybe Manchin's not at the top of that ticket. Maybe he, you know, their argument is a Republican at the top of the ticket with a Manchin second would pull from Trump. That is their argument. And they have a lot of polls to show, to, to, to David Axelrod and Harry Enten can rebut. <laughs> uh, but, but that is, that is the argument that they're making. Um, It's fascinating when you look at it. It's also, I mean, we are in this place, right? It's a year out. So many things could happen. I was fascinated, though, by another potential, we don't know, maybe fresh face in politics, Dwayne The Rock Johnson. Oh, God. Just on Trevor Noah's podcast, he says he's actually on the radar of both parties. Take a listen to this moment. At the beginning of the year, uh, at the end of the year, rather, in 2022, I got a visit from the parties. Mm Mm-hmm asking me if I was gonna run and if I could run. Wow. And it was a big deal and it came out of the blue. Wow. And it was one after the other. And um, they brought up that poll. They also brought up their own deep dive uh, research and data that would prove, should I ever decide to go down that road. That would be a real contender. Yeah. David, what do you make of that? Well, look, he's a really popular figure and he's a in, in popular culture. And, it, you know, I think we've now seen that people can make the jump from popular culture to political success uh, in America. Um, and, you know, he crosses a bunch of, of lines, racial lines, uh, you know, political lines and so on. But there's a lot of there's a lot between there and and uh, what it takes to actually run for president, become president. He said family considerations caused him not to do it. Um, So we'll see. I think that's a conversation for the future. The one we just had is very relevant because no matter what the No Labels Party says, I think Harry Anton will tell you you should put down money that one of the major party candidates is going to win. But these third party (laughs) can't these these third party candidates could decide which candidate that is. 
With a prediction like that, I might have you pick my lotto numbers <laughs> next time, David Axelrod. Margaret, when you look at that, I mean, I don't know that The Rock is the no-labels guy at this point, but it is always fascinating to hear about parties reaching out to, as David points out, somebody who checks a lot of boxes, but does that mean they're really fit and have the experience to run a country. I mean, I wonder, look, I, well, th- by design, the founding fathers wanted citizens to be servants, civil servants. So, I mean, I don't, I don't think there's any pedigree, as we know, to, to, to being president other than getting a majority of the electors in the Electoral College. I, I will say, I don't know which parties reach out to him. It sounds like no labels query, but, <laughs> but I mean, it's hard to imagine the, like, Ron, you know, the RNC and the both DNC did. both would. But, but you know, <laughs> either way, what it shows is we're in this fantasy baseball chapter of our presidential contest where mm. the field is winnowing. It looks like we know who the candidates, or we have a sense of who the candidates are going to be. On the Republican side, the field is winnowing. On the Democratic side, we suspect it'll be Joe Biden. And people are looking around for others. We have also heard... I mean, there are people in the donor class who whisper about Oprah and fantasize about Oprah still joining in a no-labels ticket as a, as a VP because, you know, she's new to politics. I mean, so there is, you just, there is, there world is, is new speculation again. everywhere all the time. And it is because, you know, people, people get tired of the choices. And yet, these are the choices Ma- Margaret, they have. Yeah. Mar- Margaret, you, you call it fantasy baseball. I think there are others who probably call it a nightmare right now. <laughs> uh, Harry, what do you call it? <laughs> I call it a dream come true because I would never have experienced anything quite like this. I mean, this is like something out of an Aaron Sorkin script rather than realism, but apparently we're now living in the West Wing or something like that. We just we just might be. Um, there is a lot, and it'll be interesting to see how it all plays out because you're right. We know who the players are, and yet we keep hearing all these things. All right, great to see all of you. Thank you. Nice Thanks for playing you. along. Thank Out front next, House Speaker Mike Johnson. He sleeps on the floor of his office. His liabilities, he says, are in the hundreds of thousands. Is he, frankly, more like the average American than the average congressman? Plus, quit your job, stay home, have children. That is exactly what China is now telling women to do. This is 2023. I'm Ina Garten. Welcome to Be My Guest, the podcast. One of the best gifts you can give friends is spending time together. But what's even better than that? Cooking with them. On Be My Guest, the podcast... New friends and old stop by my barn for some conversation and great cooking. We talk about food, life, and everything in between. Listen to Be My Guest, the podcast with me, Ina Garten, and join us wherever you get your podcasts. Tonight, former House Speaker Kevin McCarthy unloading on the Republicans who ousted him. In an exclusive interview with Armanu Raju, McCarthy sharply criticized Congressman Matt Gates and Congresswoman Nancy Mace. Both representatives joined six other Republicans to vote McCarthy out as Speaker. Here's more of what he said about Gates and Mace. People have to earn the right to be here. And um, I just think from... I mean, he'll admit to you personally, is he doesn't have a conservative bent in his philosophy um, and just the nature of what he focuses on. And if you've watched her, just her philosophy and the flip-flopping, um, uh, yeah, I, I don't believe she wins re-election. I don't think she'll probably have earned the right to get re-elected. Now, this comes as McCarthy's replacement. Speaker Mike Johnson is struggling to come up with a plan to avoid a government shutdown in just eight days. Manu Raju is out front tonight. So Manu McCarthy, uh, certainly not mincing words there. 
No, certainly not. In fact, there are still major questions, too, at this moment about exactly how the new speaker, Mike Johnson, will avoid a government shutdown and will avoid the same fate as Kevin McCarthy, who had to rely on Democratic support in order to avoid a government shutdown, passing a short-term spending bill. That prompted a revolt from his right flank, ultimately pushing him out of the speakership. Now Mike Johnson in a similar predicament. There aren't concerns that Johnson could get pushed out, but there are concerns about whether he could actually pass a bill in the House. There's no word from the Speaker's office about how he plans to proceed with just eight days until the government shuts down. The House is out of session. The Senate is out of session. Nobody is here. But before they left town, there were warnings and concerns from some of his colleagues that the honeymoon period that he has enjoyed for this brief period could be ending. I think there's a honeymoon period here. I'm not sure how long it lasts, maybe 30 days with the with what's going on on the floor today, I think that indicates the honeymoon might be shorter than we thought. So the question is that how he plans to proceed. If he tries to move too far to the right to keep the government open, then he's going to lose Democratic support, maybe even some moderate Republican support. He could prompt a revolt from the Senate, prompt a opposition from the White House that could potentially lead to a government shutdown. But if he did tries to move forward with legislation that could get support from the Democrats, that could prompt the same problems that McCarthy had. And as one congressman just told me, Erica said, the House is a mess. He went on to say, Speaker Johnson will have to thread a difficult needle while walking a high wire in gale force winds. That's us right now. Yeah, sort of yeah. a hamster wheel, but I don't need to tell you that, Manu, do I? Uh, Manu, appreciate it. Uh, be sure to tune in for Manu's full interview with former Speaker McCarthy on Inside Politics this Sunday at 11 a.m. Eastern. Well, as Speaker Johnson faces his first major test on Capitol Hill, we're still learning more about the congressman himself, who he is. A CNN investigation into Speaker Johnson's finances shows he's got more in common with most Americans than he does, frankly, with most of his colleagues. Selen Serfati is out front. Freshly minted Speaker of the House Mike Johnson facing questions over how he keeps his own financial house in order. Look, I'm a man of modest means. CNN's review of Johnson's personal financial disclosures and campaign financial documents since coming to Congress in 2017 reveal that the new Speaker appears to be living paycheck to paycheck. Your left hand on and then your right hand up and we face you. Financial records show that Johnson, like many Americans, does not appear to have much of a safety net. For the past two years, he has not reported any assets and has never even reported a checking account on financial disclosure forms. The Speaker's office says he has a personal bank account, which is exempt from House reporting rules because it is non-interest bearing, meaning he does not have to disclose this type of account under House rules. While it's unknown how much is in that account, a source with knowledge of his financial situation tells CNN that account is not big enough to be leaving large sums of money in interest on the table. All this as Johnson's liabilities are plenty. A mortgage for his family home valued between $250,000 and $500,000. A personal loan from 2016 between $15,000 and $50,000. And a home equity line of credit taken in 2019 for less than $50,000. As a congressman, Johnson was making $174,000 a year. His salary will now jump to $223,500 as speaker. And he has made over $100,000 teaching online courses at Liberty University since 2018. Last year alone, Johnson collected nearly 30000 from the college. 
On Capitol Hill to save money on steep D.C. rent, Johnson is one of the many members of Congress that sleep in their offices. A source with knowledge says the speaker will continue sleeping in his office for now, but did not know if that will always be the plan going forward. There are a lot of things on the minds of the American people. Johnson's financial standing in stark contrast to many of his colleagues on Capitol Hill. With the median net worth of his colleagues in 2018 at just over $1 million. Some former speakers have done well. Nancy Pelosi is worth more than $110 million. Before coming to Congress in 2017, Johnson was a lawyer. In 2016, he reported making over $200,000. I was a lawyer, but I did constitutional law, and most of my career I spent in the nonprofit sector. And has said that much of his money goes to taking care of his large family. We have four kids, five now, that are very active and have kids in, in graduate school, law school, undergraduate. Um, we have a lot of expenses. That financial reality, not unlike most American families. I didn't grow up with great means, but um, I think that helps us be a better leader because we can relate to every hardworking American family. That's wow. who we are. And yeah. I think it governs and helps govern my decisions and how I lead. Now, we don't know much about Speaker Johnson's wife and her full financial picture, but we do know that she indeed has some income coming in. Uh, she, according to these disclosure forms, has income coming from a few places, a Christian counseling company, work with the Louisiana Right to Life Educational Committee, as well as what's listed as various other clients on these disclosure forms. Now, these lawmakers are not required to say and disclose how much their spouses are making, but Johnson he goes a few steps farther in some of his earlier disclosure forms, Erica. He reveals how much she makes, and it's about 45 to 50 grand a year, and that's in the earlier portions. Now, he has not reported her salary since 2021. So, again, all this, just a very small snapshot of the family's full financing. Someone appreciate it. Thank you. Out front next, China's president is now urging women to drop out of the workforce and have more babies. Why? Plus, the FBI now investigating letters sent to election workers in multiple states that may have been laced with fentanyl. Tonight, Chinese President Xi Jinping with a frankly stunning message for women. Quit your job, get married, have babies. Will Ripley is out front. China's communist rulers face a looming population crisis, a crisis some say they helped create. Now they want women to help solve it by staying home and having more babies. The one-child policy, decades of forced abortions, and other draconian measures imposed on the Chinese people, preventing an estimated 200 million births, may be backfiring, experts say. For the first time since the post-famine years of the 1960s, China's massive population is shrinking. It may be too late to turn things around. 1.4 billion people living longer, getting older, aging faster than the social welfare system can keep up. China's birth rate also falling fast. Far fewer babies, a baby bust that could cripple future growth. Adding to Beijing's biggest economic challenge in four decades, youth unemployment skyrocketing. Many Chinese young people struggling to find decent paying jobs, unable to financially support themselves, never mind their aging parents. Marriage, children, forget about it. The male-dominated government says the solution is simple. 
a return to traditional family values. 积极培育新型婚育文化 We should actively foster a new type of marriage and childbirth culture. Speaking at the Chinese Communist Party's annual Women Congress, President Xi Jinping focused more on family and fertility than women in the workforce. China's most powerful leader since Mao, making his position clear: women need to go back home, have children, and care for the elderly. 听党话。Firmly listen to party's instructions and follow the party, sparking fears of a state-sponsored time warp, where women's rights take a backseat to boosting Xi's vision. Women will serve as、uh, reproductive tools at that time, and now the party wants more people, so the party can do similarly abusive things, but it just in the opposite direction, propping up the patriarchy. In a nation notorious for suppressing, arresting, and silencing feminist voices, voices on Chinese social media, the comments not scrubbed by state censors seem to have a cynical take on so-called traditional family values. One user writing, "Seeing what my mom is going through, I have no desire to get married or have children." The kind of feeling some fear could ignite calls by the ruling elite to make sure Chinese young people do exactly what the party. Wants them to do. I mean, it is really something, and and will just just to really drive this point home. As you, as you mentioned, this whole process started in part because of the Communist Party's own one-child policy. This is the sad irony of the whole thing, Erica. And and sadly, when families were forced to choose son or daughter, a lot of families in China chose to have a son. And as a result, now there is a shortage of women in China. 34 million more men than women, so they need women to give birth. Yet they don't have enough, in part because of this policy and the forced abortions that took place when families had to choose to make a choice that is a choice that no family should ever have to make, in the opinion of certainly most people in the Western free world. The other thing that's interesting is that one of the most powerful things that the Communist Party is saying is something they're not saying, Erica. It's a phrase they used every year at the Women's Congress: "Gender equality is a basic national policy." They're not saying that anymore, and that says a lot. Some say. I mean, it is. It does. It speaks volumes. Will such an important story? Really glad you brought it to us tonight. Thank you. Out front next, an alarming discovery: suspicious letters, possibly laced with fentanyl, have now been sent to election offices across the country, and the FBI is investigating. Tonight, federal law enforcement on high alert as suspicious mail is sent to election offices around the country. Some of it potentially laced with fentanyl, which could be lethal. Washington, Oregon, Nevada, California, and Georgia among the states where that mail was sent. Georgia Secretary of State Brad Raffensperger speaking out about the letters. Twelve seconds. If they don't condemn this, they're not worthy for the office that they're running for. This is domestic terrorism, and it needs to be condemned by anyone that holds elected office and anyone that wants to hold elected office. Fentanyl was found in an envelope received by election officials in Kings County, Washington, as well. That's home to Seattle, of course. That letter arriving as officials counted ballots from this week's elections, it prompted an evacuation of some 150 workers. Thanks so much for joining us tonight. AC 360 starts right now. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. 
J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, host of the Chasing Life podcast. In honor of our 10th season, we want to hear from you. Leave us a message at 470-396-0832 and tell us how you chase life. It could be used on an upcoming episode.